Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This is Make It Plain. M-I-P. With Massimella Matsumo. Mark Thompson. Make It Plain. Get woke. Ladies and gentlemen, my guest today has a brand new book out. He's a journalist based in New York City. He covered the subject of his book for Rolling Stone. Uh, the Village Voice. He's also written for the Columbia Journalism Review, the Baffler New York Magazine, and many, many more. He's put a great amount of work into his latest El Chapo, the untold story of the world's most infamous drug lord. Noah Hurowitz joins us now. Noah, welcome to Make a Plane. How are you, buddy? Hey, man. Thanks so much for having me on. I'm, uh, I'm good. Well, I'm glad you are. Congratulations on the book. You spent a lot of time covering the story and, and now the book. Tell us a little bit about you, Noah, that, that intrigued you so much to, to really go into this story and to make it a very important part of your life by covering it. Sure. So I, uh, I've i been a reporter for about a decade now. Um, I spent most of that time as sort of a local news reporter in New York City, uh, working for first for this newspaper called the Brooklyn Paper, and then for a local news website called DNA Info, which sort of covered the city uh, neighborhood by neighborhood. And DNA Info got shut down in, in 2017 because we uh, voted to unionize. Uh, and after that, I sort of got some sevens and ran away to Peru and got, you know, got better at Spanish and and was trying to do some reporting down there. But, you know, I, I came back to the United States later in, in 2018 and I started freelancing, trying to cover sort of domestic drug policy because I was very interested in sort of the way in which the opioid crisis and the, the overdose epidemic was impacting, you know, my city here in New York. Also, you know, I used to live in, in Maine and it's, that's been a big story there. So I, I, I was doing sort of more domestic drug policy. And in the fall of 2018, I had the opportunity to cover the trial of El Chapo for Rolling Stone. Very lucky break there. And 
you know, I, I went into that sort of, okay, you know, this will be a cool gig. Uh, I'll maybe go to the trial once or twice a week. I ended up being there every day or four days a week for like three months, you know, just covering every minute of the trial because it was so immersive and it was so, you know, just every, you couldn't, you couldn't look away for a minute. You know, there was this one day where I was downstairs in the press room and I was on the phone with a source and all of a sudden reporters just come streaming into the press room and I'm like, oh no, like something must have, crazy must have just happened. And it, that was the day that it had come out that one of the witnesses had accused then President Enrique Peña Nieto of taking like a hundred million dollar bribe from El Chapo. You know, so it was, wow. it was not the kind of thing that you could just, you know, drop in on occasionally. And yeah. so that just, you know, that just became, it just took over my life for those three months. And then I got the, I was approached about writing a book about, about El Chapo. And, you know, I, I actually, I, I, I thought long and hard at the beginning of, of that process about whether or not to actually do this book, because, you know, as, as I'm sure, you know, there's an incredible amount of sort of media out there about El Chapo, right? There's, mm -hmm. there's books, there's, there's Netflix shows, there's, there's documentaries. And, you know, I, I, I had my doubts about whether, whether it would be useful to write another book about El Chapo and whether I was the person to do it, you know, as, as mm. someone who didn't really know Mexico and was a gringo and, you know, <laughs> ultimately what I, what I sort of, the, the realization that I came to was, was A, if I don't do it, it's not like that, that editor is going to go to someone else. It might just not happen. And B, I felt like, yes, there's all of this information out there about El Chapo. There's all of this, 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 these books and, and documentaries. But the more I looked, the more I found them lacking a certain context you know, lacking a certain amount of putting El Chapo in the sort of social, economic, political context that I think he deserved to be put in. And so I, you know, I, I embarked on this project with the goal of using the story of El Chapo to illuminate sort of the bigger, more important story of the war on, the war on drugs in, in Mexico, the war on drugs in the United States, and sort of the role that the U.S. has, has played in that. You know, because if you look at if you look at the story of El Chapo, it really is. It really does follow sort of the story of the war on drugs. You know, he's sort of when we when we talk about him as this sort of singular genius who, you know, he he had this huge impact on the on the drug trade, which he did, I think. But, you know, what, what that obscures is the impact that these larger structural forces had on him, you know, and, and on his career. And, you know, just to give an example of that, he was entering the drug trade in Sinaloa in the early 1970s at a time when the U.S. and uh, police in Europe had just shut down what's known as the French Connection, which is a, a route for, from heroin. It was a route from for, uh, from Turkey to Marseille in France to New York. That that heroin, so that was the main route for heroin coming into the United States. Mm -hmm. And you know, as, as that was a perfect example of what we call the balloon effect, where you know, as if you're squeezing a balloon, the air goes from one side to the other. When you shut down one area of drug production, drugs don't go away. The demand, like it just shifts to another market. Right, and right. so at this time that El Chapo was, was getting into the business, the, the opium trade in and the heroin trade in Sinaloa just exploded because suddenly there was this huge demand for heroin that was no longer being met. And there was already sort of a, you know, a, a smallish opium trade in Sinaloa, and that just exploded. So there's all of these instances throughout El Chapo's career of larger structural forces impacting the amount of money he was able to make, impacting the deals he was able to have with elements of the Mexican state. And so, you know, I, I just basically, it's really hard to get Americans, North Americans, to care about anything outside of the United States. 
you know, to, to care about international news. And so when you're presented with an opportunity like this fascinating figure like El Chapo, who people want to know about people, you know, it, it just, it automatically piques people's interest to hear the name El Chapo because he's such a fascinating mm-hmm. character. So mm-hmm. I saw that as a really good opportunity to tell a really engaging, interesting story while also sort of trying to, you know, uh, confront or debunk as many sort of myths about his life as I could, while also putting him in that context that I found was sort of lacking from other, from other portrayals of him. Well, I think what you said about the context is is very important. Full disclosure: I knew Gary Webb. I was Appreciate a part. I, yeah, I was a part of the movement along with Dick Gregory and uh, Maxine Waters to ex- further expose what he exposed. Uh, we, we demonstrated and committed civil disobedience at the <laughs> the DEA, the CIA, and, and elsewhere. Hell yeah! I'm, and right in the middle of that. So when you when you talk about what what Mar- what Americans singularly focus on or, or focus on in a very small way. I and mean, I think even with El Chapo, I think even you would agree. There's this sort of curiosity around him, but I think what your book helps us do is go even beyond that. Uh, and I think people sometimes even still look at what's going on with, with drugs and addiction through a very personal lens, which is fine. But you said something very important, the, the structures that exist um, I mean, these things just don't happen on their own. So, so let's start there, because I think that's very important for people to understand to what extent El Chapo contributed to the structures, but more importantly, how the structure may have created him. Did, it, yeah. did, did the structure make, bring someone like him into being, into greater being, into existence? My short answer would be yes. The structure in which El Chapo was operating brought many high-profile and powerful drug traffickers into being, including El Chapo. The other thing that I think a sort of singular focus on him obscures is that he wasn't, you know, it wasn't like he was the only show in town. You know, we talk about sort of the, we talk about cartels, we talk about like the Sinaloa cartel, which, you know, we can, we can get into why I sort of find that terminology problematic, but El Chapo was one of many drug traffickers in Mexico, all of whom were working in some way or another Number one, within a sort of, you know, a larger, like rational economic market. Number two, they were operating with the support of various elements of the Mexican state. The corruption that you can't traffic drugs without corruption. And so they, they were very, you know, there was a pretty sort of standardized method of operating in Mexico with the approval of the people that they needed approval from. And this is referred to often as the plaza system, right? Where one drug trafficker would sort of be the go-to liaison with elements of the police, the political class, the judicial class, whatever, in order to sort of buy off the ability to to work in that area. And then anyone who didn't pay into that would be the one who was sort of, you know, on the news getting arrested or killed and having their drugs seized. And so that allows the state to pretend that it's confronting drug trafficking, while also individuals making a lot of money by allowing other people to traffic drugs. And so I think that El Chapo was certainly, there are ways in which El Chapo was influential. You know, he, he popularized the, the sort of the use of sort of tunnels under the border. I think he was very influential in Sinaloa as a sort of a figure within this sort of larger social economic structure, right? Because drug traffickers did play sort of a role as like power brokers and as as sort of locals, what's the word, sort of strongmen 
you know. But I'm much more interested in sort of in, in that, in sort of the, the role that he played in sort of the the, the structure of, of society in Sinaloa and less so in sort of, you know, was he the most influential drug trafficker ever? Because I don't think that like, I think that's, you know, I think you're asking the right question, right? I, I think that the, the impact that the larger structures of the drug trade and of the of prohibition and the war on drugs had on El Chapo's career and on his life were much greater than any impact that he might've personally had on the drug trade. More MIP after this message. But, but I mean, you mentioned the, the corruption in Mexico. Yeah. What influence did America's waging war on drugs? Could what influence did that? Did that have any influence on that corruption? Did it contribute to that corruption? Did America's role in this yes. help yeah. make him so? That's a good question because I don't want to, you know, I don't want to make it seem like this is just a problem of the Mexican government. You know, mm. I, I've I've been asked, you know, is there is there that kind of corruption? In the American government, and in, in one part of my answer is, is on a structural level, no. Um, I don't think that the that the the sort of I think that we we see different things in in Mexico. I think it's a much more sort of you know there's this sort of this corruption of the institutions based on sort of profit and ability for drug traffickers to operate with impunity. Whereas in the U.S., I think what is corrupt is more the the motives of the drug war and the way in which the drug war is waged. So did did the US influence that corruption in Mexico? Absolutely. And in many ways. One is just that prohibition causes the 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 price of drugs to go up, you know? It, you can charge more because of the risk of transporting it and because it's illegal. Black market goods are going to be more expensive. That increases the profits of of drug traffickers and makes them more able to buy off officials in Mexico. Number two, the U.S. has has used the war on drugs as sort of a coercive element of foreign policy in Mexico and in, in Latin America as a whole for many, many years. Um, and, you know, not because of a sincere belief in in the ability to end the drug trade, but because it's a really useful cudgel to get Latin American governments in line. We've seen that for decades. There's this really important event in my book that I or that I write about in my book called Operation Intercept, where the Nixon administration basically shut down the U.S.-Mexico border for like 20 days by saying, "Oh, we're doing this contraband search. We're searching every car that's coming into into the U.S. from Mexico," which is impossible, and so it, it effectively just shut down the border. And at the time, you know, a lot of people were really angry. There was this sort of like finger wagging editorial in the New York Times where they were like, this was a debacle, this was a failure. And later, G. Gordon Liddy, you know, the, the guy who was made famous by, by Watergate, said it was only a failure if you didn't know its true purpose, which was extortion, pure and simple. He said that it was extortion. It was international diplomatic extortion to show Mexico, to show the government in Mexico City that, hey, you answer to us. You know, we can, we can sustain this longer than you can. And I think that it's really instructive to look at the war on drugs through that lens, not so much of the stated goals, which I think are patently absurd, but rather what are the potential ulterior motives? And I'm, this is not a conspiracy. This is, this is a, you know, as, as Gary Webb said, I'm not talking about a conspiracy theory. I'm talking about a conspiracy. This is, uh, you know, there's a lot of sort of overlapping and competing interests that have a vested interest in seeing the drug war continue, whether it's the federal agencies that need their budgets to keep increasing or the military, which needs an excuse to spend its bloated budget, you know, particularly at the end of the Cold War. 
way. So, you know, if, if we look at, there, there's so many people who have a vested interest in, in this war continuing. And so I think that, you know, the word for that is not necessarily, I would not necessarily call that corruption necessarily in terms of like bribery and graft. But I think it's, you know, on a moral scale, I think it's arguably far worse because the, the impacts of this war are tremendous and and horrifying and you know the hundreds of thousands of people have been murdered in mexico in the last 15 years since sort of the latest iteration of the drug war was launched by felipe calderon in late 2006 at the behest of the united states and we're not anywhere closer if anything it's it's gotten worse because criminal groups get sort of atomized and smaller and and, and more con- there's more competition between them and they kill more people and they extort more people mm-hmm. and they kidnap more people and all of this being done for a goal that I don't think anyone actually at the top believes in. I think that there's certainly people within the DEA who really do believe in what they're doing. And I've, I've spoken to some of them. And even though I think that their mission is sort of, you know, a farce, I understand that they are sincere. But at the top, you know, I don't see how anyone could actually believe this as the stated goals of the drug war. I think they understand that it's a useful tool for keeping governments in Mexico in line. And the consequences of that are so wretched and so horrifying, and they don't seem to care. And to me, that's something morally more repulsive than than sort of just just pure sort of uh, greed or corruption. Are the circumstances as wretched and as horrifying as they were when El Chapo was in operation, or has any of that subsided since his arrest and capture? Has anything really changed? It gets worse every year. It really does. There were certain shifts in Sinaloa with the arrest of El Chapo, you know, there was immediately after he was extradited in 2017, there was sort of a, a brief power struggle between his sons and this um, this lieutenant of El Chapo named Damaso Lopez. And that resulted in uh, some you know, pretty bad bursts of violence in Sinaloa, in Culiacan, including the murder of a, of a well-known journalist, Javier Valdez, who, whose murder seems to have been sort of part of that power struggle. But eventually... The El Chapo's sons kind of seem to have won that power struggle. Damaso Lopez was arrested. His son fled, and after that, I think the the you know settled into this sort of this a little bit more routine. I went to Sinaloa four times from anywhere from a few days to two weeks in 2019, and you know what I found was that people did feel sort of nostalgic for the times that El Chapo was there. I think that they saw him as sort of a force for stability. But that's Sinaloa, which, you know, it's different in other places, but he has a certain sort of hometown following, hometown appreciation in, in Sinaloa. But I think, you know, overall, this sort of kingpin strategy of, of arresting the so-called like leaders of cartels has always made things worse pretty immediately and pretty directly. Um, mm. it, it, like I said, it results in sort of the fragmentation of, of trafficking networks and they become, you know, they're, they break up into smaller parts and they start fighting each other and they start focusing on more immediate ways of making money, which often includes sort of turning their focus inward on the communities that they operate in, which often results in just, you know, a, a dreadful increase in violence. And so I, I would say that in every way that matters, it has gotten worse since El Chapo was arrested. I'm not saying mm. that he necessarily deserves to to be a free man. I think he has a tremendous amount of, of blood on his hands, but I think so do the DEA and so do the officials in Mexico who have, who have sort of been pursuing this this failed strategy on behalf of the of the United States and causing just a tremendous amount of lost life and, and violence. More MIP after this message. 
You also researched this book through all your journalism, of course, cumulatively. You, if I'm not mistaken, you kind of put yourself in harm's way once or twice, didn't you? I wasn't always in the safest places. I will say that. <laughs> um, so in 2019, April of 2019, I went on my first trip to Sinaloa. And that was sort of my introduction to working in sort of a, an area like that. And it was intense, you know, and I, and I, I took my, my safety and, and security very seriously. I wasn't trying to be reckless. I wasn't trying to sort of, you know, operate with, with, with this false sense of, of bravado. Mexico is one of the most dangerous countries in the world for journalists. You know, right. dozens of journalists have been killed in the, just in the last few years alone while I've been reporting this, this book. But the sad fact of the matter is, is that that danger falls much more on Mexican journalists working in Mexico than it does on, you know, a gringo like me going down there to, to work. I think there's, a, there's generally a sense that it would, you know, among criminals, that it would be uh, a bad idea to get that kind of attention by, by killing a, a gringo journalist. But every trip that I would take to Sinaloa, I would, in some senses, I would get more comfortable because I started to know the city better and I would, I would be able to, you know, walk around and know where to go. And, but I, I would always, you know, whenever I was in Sinaloa, I would, um, I had like a daily check-in with a friend of mine who is the, he's like a, a press freedom advocate in Mexico City, right? So he would know, you know, if I didn't check in, he would know what to do to, you know, who to alert, whatever. And I just, you know, I just did a, t a lot of sort of pre-research, knowing who I was talking to, knowing where I was going, telling people where I was going, um, because I didn't want to take any chances. And yeah, you know, I, I had I had to talk my way through a couple like armed checkpoints up in the mountains. And, you know, I, I met sort of an unpleasant guy in a in a in a bar at one point who asked me if I was DEA, which to him I was I told him, and this I think is true, that I look too much like a DEA agent for the DEA to ever send me to to Mexico. You know, they would never send a, a gringo looking like me there. They would they just it would be too stupid. So you know those that was sort of a, a nerve-wracking moment when this guy in some bar in Culiacan is asking me if I'm DEA. But for the most part, as long as you don't do anything stupid, don't act like a jerk, and make sure to sort of do your research and talk to people who know the area. You know, I, I never felt directly threatened. Okay. Okay. Folks, we invite you to check out the book. Just before we go, El Chapo, the untold story of the world's most infamous drug lord. You mentioned your concern for those who've been victims of the ongoing drug war. Give us a glimpse, if you would, about how your book can actually in any way be helpful or informative to those who are families and survivors of drug war victims. Yeah. By reading your book, what can people learn and understand to maybe, you know, put some, for lack of a better word, meaning even into what they've experienced? I believe really strongly in the ability for sort of new conversations and new methods of looking at an issue to help change public opinion and help change policy eventually. And I think that one thing that I do in my book is, is try to make really strong connections between the things that we see happening on the ground and the people and institutions that help perpetuate that. You know, and I think that the only way that we can begin to confront or continue to confront and begin to end 
this, you know, we're, we're at, we're at a, a sort of this critical moment right now where there's, you know, we're, we're starting to see, we're starting to legalize marijuana in, you know, almost every state. There, there's starting to be this conversation where we're, we're starting to acknowledge that the war on drugs, such as we, we, we see it, has, has failed. And I would argue, like I said earlier, that it, it hasn't failed because the goal was never to stop the war on drugs, you know? And so I think that, I think that the more that we understand who benefits from the war on drugs, the more the more we understand sort of the ways in which arms manufacturers benefit from the trafficking of weapons across the border into Mexico, the more that we understand how the DEA and the FBI use the war on drugs to get a bigger budget, the more that we understand how the military does the same, how how politicians along the border use the war on drugs as sort of a, a, a scare tactic to, to get votes and to get power. By understanding that, I think we can start to confront those forces and start to try and find a way to find justice and, and, and peace for, for those who have been lost either to violence or overdose deaths or incarceration. And, you know, I think that my book will play a very small part in that. I hope it will play any kind of part in that. But I think that, you know, I think that reading this book and getting an understanding of where El Chapo came from and how that influenced him, how his origins influenced him and how the larger structures of capitalism, U.S. foreign policy, neoliberal economics all influenced sort of, you know, the, the trajectory that brings us to today. I don't know. I don't know if anyone will find my book particularly comforting, but I hope it makes them angry. Mm, mm, yeah. And that's fine. I, I don't knock that emotion as all, at all. Some of us need to be more angry about this, yeah. and perhaps that anger will get us to focus in more on the structures, to use your yeah. word, that are responsible. We're not I'm certainly angrier. To... I'm certainly angrier than I was when I started working on this book, but I do right. feel like I've I've found an outlet for that. You know, I do feel like, yeah. and it yeah. is, it's not about me. It's not, but like I'm just saying that, like this, this is this subject will make you angry. Um, yeah, yeah. But you yeah. have to do something with that anger. Right, right. No, and I think that's the point. I think that's what, what people have to be inspired to do, because uh, this problem will not solve itself. And the the ongoing response of, of helplessness, helplessness is understandable, but we got to do something about this. And um, I, that's a great answer, by the way. Folks, I hope you'll check it out, encourage others. This is a very tangled web that has been woven. But our friend Noah tries to untangle as much of it as he can to bring us to a level of understanding so that we can be angry and so that we can act. It's on Simon and Schuster, El Chapo, the untold story of the world's most infamous drug lord by our friend Noah Hurowitz. Noah, again, congratulations. Thank you for all your hard work. What's next? What are you working on next? I'm going to go on vacation for a little bit. <laughs> Been a long two and a half years. You can see the the bags under my eyes, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, yeah. so, but you know, I I I think that I I don't want to have this be something where I just you know write a book about about Mexico or about El Chapo and then you know take the money and run. I want to I want to yeah. go deeper. I want to you know I spoke about my hesitance at the beginning to talk about this sort of individual story, this individual analysis of of the war on drugs, and I would I would love to you know. For, for whatever comes next to be able to delve deeper and, and have more of a sort of laser focus, the larger issues at play right. than just one guy. I really want to get past this sort of focus on, on, on individual 
drug traffickers, individual sort of faces of the drug trade after everyone reads my book. Everyone should read my book and then get past the individual thing, right, you know? Right, right. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I would really like to, to go deeper and yeah. get a stronger understanding of, of how this how this war on drugs functions and, and how um, it might be ended. After your vacation, we look forward, my friend, to more depth from you. But folks, meanwhile, check out the book, El Chapo, The Untold Story of the World's Most Infamous Drug Lord by one who's covered it for years, one who knows the story, Noah Heroes. Noah, again, thank you for joining us on Make It Plain. Thank you, thanks, thanks for having me on so much. Thanks for getting woke and listening to Make It Plain. Please remember to listen, like, and wherever you get your podcasts, please give the show a five-star rating. And please do spread the word. Let's all continue to pray for each other during this pandemic and this police-demic. If all hearts and minds are clear, it has been made plain. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.